Hello and welcome to a chat with Anat. I am Professor Anat Lowenstein, host of this podcast series, chair of the Department of Ophthalmology at the Tel Aviv Medical Center in Tel Aviv, Israel, and Professor of Ophthalmology and Vice Dean of the Sackler Faculty of Medicine at the Tel Aviv University in Tel Aviv, Israel. I'm a consultant to several pharmaceutical companies, including Bayer, and you can find further details of my disclosures in the podcast description. This podcast series is sponsored and organized by Bayer, but the content does not necessarily represent the opinions of Bayer. For each of these podcasts, I will be joined by an internationally renowned colleague, and we will discuss key topics of interest to enhance care and optimize the treatment of our patients with neovascular macular degeneration. Today, I'm fortunate to be joined by Dr. Jane Barrett. Jane is the Secretary General of the International Federation of Aging, otherwise known as IFA, which represents the rights and perspectives of over 75 million people with higher age. Welcome, Jane. And thank you very much, Annette. It's a great pleasure and honor to be with you and colleagues today. In this episode, Jane and I will be discussing the education that patients with neovascular macular degeneration typically receive about their condition and the ways in which we can potentially facilitate meaningful engagement with and empowerment of our patients. We will also talk about the challenges faced when speaking with patients about their expectations of treatment and ways to improve communication with patients to enable realistic expectation setting. In my experience, usually when we see a patient that has macular degeneration, we tell them about the disease, we tell them about the prognosis, we tell them what is the treatment that they are going to receive, and how many treatments, how much do they need to be engaged? Usually we do it in a pretty short manner. You know, why is patient education so important for the person and the family and society? Um, We've got something like a perfect storm coming, you know, rapid population aging, and also, you know, vision complications from AMD. You know, what we know is that the projected number of people with AMD in 2020 was around 196 million people. And that is going to only escalate to about 288 million by 2040. So that's that's one set of characteristics. But then we've got to look at the healthcare systems. How do we actually effectively communicate you know, the prevention aspects of AMD, but also communicate, you know, the treatment, you know, process and and uh, and journey. And that's a really complicated set of variables, particularly when you've got very few minutes to communicate that. So you're quite right, you know, in the frame of reference of patient education, you've got to quickly communicate you know, the diagnosis, the pathway of treatment, um, the complications, but you've also got to appreciate, you and your colleagues, that this person and the environment in which they're living. 
And so it's not only communicating with the person, but it's getting a good sense of where they're coming from in terms of the understanding. So it really is a much complicated process than what we hoped that it would be. Jane, I totally agree with everything you said. And you know, this is even more important and more complicated because we are talking about elderly patients. Maybe for these elderly patients, it's even more difficult to convey the important information that we need to give them. So in your experience, how does all this method of explanation and patient education, uh, how does it compare to similarly aged patients which receive treatment for other diseases, just have the same age? Mm -hmm. um, look, that's a great question. Um, what we know is that, you know, the communication needs to be simple and consistent. You know, the person, the, the specialist needs to be actually looking at the person directly and if possible, having, you know, an accompanied person, a spouse or a caregiver. But it's also important to actually understand the, the other comorbid conditions because your patient may actually have some cognitive changes. You know, the patient may also have significant hearing loss and the person may also have mobility issues. So it's this sense of comfort that the environment needs to give the person before you even actually start communicating. So having a good understanding of their comorbid conditions is really important. So if I think about the pathway that the patient goes, you know, first of all, they've actually get to get to the appointment, don't they? And then they actually have to go through reception and they may have a series of tests and they may be waiting and then they go and see, you know, the specialist. So they could be in your department for an hour, sometimes two hours. And so the environment will also give rise to a lot of anxiety, you know, around how you communicate with them about the treatment regimes and, and, and what's been found in the assessments before that. Yes, Jane, I think what you said is very valid. And actually, you already answered my next question, which was about comorbidities. I do think that having comorbidities is, makes it much more difficult to convey to the patient what we need to tell them about this specific disease. I think also what we need to be assured of is that you know, verbal communication is actually reinforced by written communication. And it may not be for the person, but it may be for their caregiver. And I actually uh, really think a lot about the caregivers because sometimes I see physicians that tend to speak only to the caregivers and they're not looking at the patient as though the patient uh, cannot understand just because he has the disease. And I think this is something, even though we do want the caregivers to be involved, we need to have the patient on our focus. And I'm sure that you would agree with that. Well, we talk about the rights of older people are human rights. And everybody has must have the opportunity to be informed and be part of the decision-making process. It's, it's helpful to have a caregiver or an accompanying person because we know that you know, as we grow older, there are some subtle cognitive changes, slower inductive reasoning, slower problem solving, um, declines in, in perceptual speed. So we know that that's in many of our patients, you know, part of the normalized process of growing older. 
So to have that second person there is important. That The person that uh, you should be speaking to is the patient. They may refer to um, their caregiver, but it's also perhaps as a good practice um, not, to, not to have the caregiver and in the same line as your patient. Have them sitting slightly back, you know, so that you can direct your attention, you know, to your patient. And of course, Annette, if we think about, you know, some of the populations that you're, you're working with, we're also conscious of, you know, language and the assumption that everybody has the same level of literacy, health literacy in the communication. Um, and also some generations of older people, and my mother's one of them, she's 94 soon, um, she will tend to say, yes, yes, I understand, doctor, when in fact she's quite hesitant to ask questions of you. Um, and her comment will be, um, the doctor's very busy. You know, I don't want to take up the doctor's time. So I think that, you know, we've got to actually not have a cookie cutter approach, but really focus on that person in front of us. Uh, I think during the COVID pandemic, we had even more challenges with our patients, you know, the visits were shorter, some people missed visits and so forth. Do you think that this is uh, very common to experience even more communication difficulties due to the COVID pandemic? Look, it's happening around the world as we speak, Annette. Uh, we're still in the midst of the pandemic. You know, one of my concerns about um, the, the healthcare systems and what processes we've been put, we've, we've, we've put in place is this could be a sign of the future, you know, which it has pros and cons, doesn't it? You know, we have perspex, you know, um, in front of us now in every reception area. So that blocks sound. So someone that has a, a hearing impairment, you know, they can't hear quite so much. Um, equally, social distancing, which is a, which is a, 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 you know, one of the precautions, the, the way that we um, protect ourselves, that also has made an impact in terms of the waiting area and how long that we're waiting. Uh, also, when we're going and seeing our specialist, you know, they may have two masks and also a shield, you know, around their face. So a lot of older people actually, you know, not they don't read lips, but they look at the person's face to gain a general sense of, you know, the facial expressions as well as the communication. So we've actually layered on, you know, barriers, physical barriers, as well as social barriers. Um, and so I think that this is going to be very difficult to move forward from because I don't know what's happening in Israel, but as soon as we actually start taking down some of the restrictions, then shortly afterwards, we build them up again. And so I think that we're going to be in this, in, in this whole process of um, communication difficulties with patients for quite some time. Yes, Jane, I, I agree with you. I think all of this uh, raised additional challenges do, during the COVID time, and I think it made it much more difficult for our patients and for us. And 
I think there is a lot of room for improvement. You know, uh, we are involved in effort to uh, build uh, short movies for the patients that are personalized and the physician really uh, builds them. He, he, he has an application and he notes if it's a man or a woman, if it's AMD or, or diabetic retinopathy, if it's, he notes every note and uh, then the movie becomes personalized for the patient to watch it sent to the patient as a link and to his caregiver. And it's a very a good way to try and overcome some of the difficulties. So I hope this uh, can be something uh, good for the future. You know, that's an example of best practice. You know, there's no question mm -hmm. that that reinforces the messages that are communicated. So what you've, you know, you've done, you've actually communicated verbally, you know, within the clinic, you know, a person's got you know, a video to take home, and they will actually play it time and time again. I think also it's very important because for those people with um, hearing impairments, you know, we can have the words on the bottom of the screen. And so you're really maximising the opportunity for a person to understand. And of course, that leads into compliance, doesn't it? And I think what we're trying to do in uh, treatment situations is ensure that there's a good understanding, that questions are being responded to, so that the patient can actually do what they're being asked to do with treatment. And so this is about improving compliance um, and adherence in the treatment setting, which is good practice. Thank you. I think it's, uh, it's really very helpful. They can put it on a bigger screen at home, you know, like someone puts a movie on the on his TV set or something like that. So I think it does have a, a lot of potential. Another question that I wanted you to relate to is the issue of patients' expectations. I find that uh, uh, putting up front the real potential of the eye, the number of injections that the patients will need, um, what is expected of his visual acuity, I think it's very helpful. If I don't tell my patients upfront, you are going to need on average seven injections a year. Um, some of you, you might need 12 and you might need only three, but on average, someone like you will need seven injections a year, probably for many years, maybe for your whole life. I think it's very helpful to put these points upfront to the patient. What do you think? You would do exactly the same for your mother, your father, your sister, your brother. So why wouldn't you do it for the patient in front of you? You know, people have the right to know not only, you know, the health of their eye, but also the impact of the disease and what treatment is required, because then that gives them a sense of what they need to do to ensure the best outcomes for them. And of course, I think there's also this relationship between the treatments and function. You know, I always like to have this conversation about, you know, this will actually maintain or help improve your function because older people actually want to be able to know that they're able to be in the, um, the home by themselves or, you know, they're able to um, look after themselves, to cook, to clean, to wash, also be volunteers. So they actually need to actually understand it in terms of the function. Yes, Jane, I, I totally agree. You know, um, I already, I think I told you in the past, at the first I would tell my patients they're going to need three injections and then we'll talk. And now I know that this is not the way to go. And I tell them up front uh, that they're going to need the long-term treatment and they can expect to have the vision stabilized and sometimes also improve. But I think setting the expectations is really, really, really an important point. 
Yeah, and that, you know, I think that your shift from, you know, three treatments to long term is an important jump for a patient. And so if I was one of your patients, I would say, you know, Dr. Lowenstein, what do you mean by long term? Because I think it's about, yeah, having, yeah that it, unpacking these words, long term to me, maybe one year. But to you, it so may I'm be five years. I'm actually emphasizing for your whole life, most probably. <laughs> <laughs> well, I, th I, I think that's uh, very important if someone's 80. So um, I think it's, it's really unpacking these words for someone. What do you think is the key problem in securing patient engagement? It's when the patient doesn't quite understand, you know, what is required. This is a conversation between the healthcare professional and the patient, not the healthcare professional to the patient. You know, and if you have that conversation, then as a as a uh, ophthalmologist, you'll have a good understanding of what they're dealing with in their environment. So it really is, you know, coming together and understanding what they have to do in their environment. Of course, expectations is critical, but there may be something um, in, in their environment that you're not aware of, you know. So perhaps they are looking after someone in their own home and not able to do what you asked, uh, have asked them to do. So it really is to have that conversation, be realistic with the expectations. As we come to close, what are your key take-home messages for our listeners who want to improve their engagement of their patients with macular degeneration? Look, thank you, Annette, for the opportunity. I, I've got four or five tips. First and foremost, demonstrate interest in the patient beyond, you know, what they've come for because that starts developing the relationship. They, you know, give an opportunity, you know, to ask the questions. You know, the goal is to really help the patient achieve the best state of vision health possible. And it's through their actions and your actions coming together. You know, have innovative methods of education available. And Annette, you've clearly, you know, shared one of the innovations in terms of the, the tailored video clips. Um, perhaps ask the patient to explain back to you or your nurse what's required. And of course, adapt the learning style to the person's language and health literacy going forward. Um, I know from, from working with uh, you and other ophthalmologists, you have an acute sense of the importance of patient education. And it's about coming to it from different angles, which uh, will, I'm sure, improve the compliance and adherence of treatment um, and ensure the best health outcomes for the person that we're working with. Thank you very much, Jane. That's all we have time for today. And thank you to my special guest, Dr. Jane Barrett. Thank you very much, Annette. It was a pleasure to be with you. Jane, that was very helpful, what you said at the end. Oh, look, it's, it's what we know, Annette, but uh, sometimes it's helpful. Yeah, it's good to put it in words. It's good to put it in words. Yeah, well, look, thanks for the opportunity, Annette. Thank you. I'd also like to thank everyone for listening. We hope you found the chat as interesting as we have. I was very interested in what Jane had to tell us. Please click follow or subscribe and listen to my previous podcast episodes, which cover topics such as terminology of adherence and persistence, how to motivate our patients to be adherent, 
and how clinic organization can be used to improve adherence and persistence. Look out for future podcast episodes coming soon. And thank you again for listening. Bye.